This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Thanks so much for listening in today. I'm Joel Hilliker. The James Webb Space Telescope has only been conducting scientific operations for a few weeks now, but it's already revealing some startling truths, truths that are undermining science's best guesses about the origins of the universe. We're going to start the show today by talking with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about some of the latest findings from this extraordinary telescope. Then we'll talk about China. Analysts say a Chinese invasion of Taiwan could be closer than we think. And this is part of an overall rise in China's belligerence in the South China Sea and beyond. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques about the passing of an era of American-led global security to one where China increasingly dominates. Then we'll hear about a destructive move by Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. There's a disaster unfolding in the Netherlands where food production is being decimated by misguided environmental restrictions. Canada's government is watching the Netherlands and thinks that this is the path that it needs to follow. It just announced its intent to uh, force farmers to drastically cut nitrogen fertilizers and hence food production. We'll learn about this in a report from trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau. And finally, we'll talk a bit about why disciplining our children often fails. I'll give you some practical advice for how to reduce the number of battles you're having with your children by speaking only once. Let's start now by looking at the latest finds from the James Webb Space Telescope. To talk about this, we have from our office in Britain, Richard Palmer. Hello, Richard. Good afternoon. The images that we're getting so far from this telescope are spectacular. There, there's much greater clarity than, than any that we've uh, received before from the Hubble or any other telescope. And it's also seeing deeper into space, deeper into history. And really, the, um, probably the greatest ambition these scientists have is to better understand the origins of the universe. And when you're talking about something that happened billions of years ago, you have to make a lot of guesses if you're just looking at clues within the material realm, within the physical realm. The more information you have, the better your guesses will be. So James Webb is giving scientists a lot more information than they've had before, and it's already exposing some of their previous guesses as being wrong. Tell us about that. Right, it's already causing serious problems in this kind of theory of stellar evolution. You know, the kind of this, the current main way of explaining a creation without a creator is okay. There's a big bang, and we don't talk too much about what caused that. Uh, and then you kind of have this gradual development. You have a uh, kind of soup of simple particles and energy and these soup of this soup of particles gradually starts to clump together and these clumps due to gravity pull in more clumps and this leads to eventually stars igniting and then these stars gather together and you gradually develop galaxies uh and you you have this slow gradual process and you know, like you said, you 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 make guess. Then, then scientists go on to make guesses based on experiments and other things like that as to well, what should a universe that develops in this way look like? And the results of those guesses are looking very different from from what Webb is showing. One of those is this kind of picture of 
as you look back, in general, they expected to, to find fewer galaxies and certainly fewer brighter galaxies. Uh, and what they're finding very quickly across a whole range of different scientific papers is, oh, it's a whole lot easier to find distant galaxies than we were expecting. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a whole lot easier to find ancient galaxies when we're expecting. Well, there's one particular study where you know, they found some particularly bright galaxy and they said, well, we should have had to have searched 10 to 100 times more of the sky before we found this than we did. So the fact that uh, that they're finding what they are, that it's so much easier, it shows that the universe was far more developed. It was uh, it was far more advanced uh, than they would expect at those early periods in history. That's right. One team said, wrote that the uh, the discovery of one particular uh, unexpectedly luminous galaxy may challenge our current understanding of early galaxy buildup uh, and. Uh, yeah, there are quite a few. It's still very early days, but there's quite a few papers around the same thing. There's another paper that discovered a, an ancient galaxy, and they wrote that it hinted at significant differences between the physical assumptions in these models and the real early universe. You know that the real, uh, real, the reality of the early universe differs quite substantially from this picture of a gradual galactic evolution. And you know the size, the brightness of these galaxies is this is just one of several factors that we're seeing just weeks after Weber's launch that is raising some of these uh, some of these problems uh, you know there was another another study it said that uh, talking about how the high number of such objects found at this rate the, the age and none of this is expected from previously favored predictions it's a very different picture yeah it's it's an interesting development in really a process that has been going on for a number of years now where, uh, you know, in the last few generations, basically uh, everything that we've been studying in the universe has shown that the scientists who rejected the idea of a creation event were just wrong. Every, every time that they would put forward, forward a theory that, uh, that this all came about, how, this, uh, how the universe came to be what it was, they thought matter and energy were eternal for the longest time, so they didn't even have to explain its origins. Uh, but the more science learns, the more it, it shows there had to have been a creation event. And, and really, the further back we've looked, the more uh, confirmation there's been that it's been quite advanced state of of development that it's it's much closer to what we know today at an earlier time than than ever and now james webb is showing that it came to be in its current state of maturity uh much quicker than they assumed yeah that's right it kind of reminds me a bit of the way the theory of evolution is kind of you know developed where you know, saying Earth is four billion years old sounds like plenty of time or mm. kind of sounds like plenty of time for things to gradually change. But then once scientists start looking at the details of all the things necessary to change, you've got quite a few scientists recently saying there's not enough time. And this leads to people like Richard Dawkins and some others saying, well, maybe life, we need more time for evolution to happen. <laughs> maybe it began on another planet and then came to Earth. And yeah. Uh, but it's kind of the same thing where they seem they think, OK, well, the universe 13 billion years old, that's plenty of time for things to gradually evolve. We're at the point now where they're looking back to galaxies that they believe were formed 300 million years after the Big Bang. And there are a lot of them and there are big galaxies. And that's a pretty big problem because 
the theory, this kind of theory says that stars didn't begin to form until 250 million years after the Big Bang. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. you know, they're looking back until st- areas that should be the deep, dim past where galaxies are just kind of first starting to be there, according to their theories. And then they're finding big galaxies everywhere. And again, it's this isn't the only thing that doesn't match. There was also this kind of idea that, well, the universe is expanding, but the amount of stuff in it remains constant. So if galaxies are developing like this in a cramped universe that you know initiated at a single point and then expands outwards, well, they should be distorted in shape by all of the interactions they're having with the other, the other galaxies. You should have much more of these weird-shaped galaxies. And that's what they thought the earlier universe looked like. Webb is already showing that's not true, and that there are potentially 10 or 100 times more prevalent of nice, neat, disc-shaped galaxies, the same things that we see looking around the sky now, uh, anciently. There's another uh, prediction that said, well, atoms kind of begin as, as the most simple element, hi- uh, hydrogen, and gradually build up into these heavier atoms. So when we look back into the early universe, which we should see a lot of hydrogen and not much of these heavier elements. And again, there's, it's only been one study so far, but that's not the picture. They're looking and saying, oh, actually, there's a surprising richness in these more complex elements when we look earlier in the universe. So... It's not just one kind of data point we're talking about. It's everywhere that they look right now. And again, we're just weeks out of of, of web really publishing data. But everywhere that they look, reality is at odds with these predictions based on these theories. You uh, wrote about this in your trumpet brief that uh, was sent out Monday evening. And you have a quote in here from uh, an astronomer, Allison Kirkpatrick from University of Kansas. And she... uh, she says, uh, right now, uh, she, talking about these challenges to these theories of galactic evolution, uh, she said to Nature magazine, right now I find myself lying awake at three in the morning wondering if everything I've ever done is wrong. Uh, I just find that so fascinating. And, and I, in a way, I feel like there's something fundamentally wonderful about what these scientists are doing here because they're, when you think about the efforts that they're making to to seek out truth uh they're they're inviting correction is what they're doing they they want to be corrected in their i mean the the best scientists they want they want their assumptions to be challenged and they want to get to to the bottom of the the truth here and and really going to extraordinary lengths to seek that out even if it proves them wrong and and i feel like that's that is what science is supposed to be in a sense that you put your guesses to the test and you follow where the evidence leads and it just so happens that that the evidence here is leading them to genesis chapter one <laughs> it is nice to see some people making those kind of statements and it just makes me wonder where are we going to be a year from now right you know i think that's what's really blowing me away about this um you know i think i, I expected this you we all kind of expected something like this from from web where what it sees from the early universe matches Genesis 1 and not uh, the scientists' earlier predictions. But it's just blown me away that, it, that, that you know, we were only getting the first pictures, what, the beginning of July, now we're the beginning of August? Uh, I'm surprised they're even putting papers out this fast. Yeah. Uh, I guess there are a lot of people eager to jump on those, but it's just taken us a few weeks, and every single person writing these, this paper is kind of, they're saying, you know, this is early days yet, we don't want to get too excited, but this does seem to completely contradict what we were expecting. We need more data to be sure. Yeah. Uh, 
and that you put all the papers together and it paints a very compelling picture already. But in a year, what, you know, I, I think, I think we'll reach the point where just the, the, the current theories are completely untenable. Yeah, it, it is um, kind of remarkable just how forthcoming they're, they're being with uh, saying like what we knew was wrong. Um, it, it kind of reminds me just the fact that this is, is happening the way that it is. Uh, it reminds me of that discovery of the curses tablet on Mount Ebal in, uh, in Israel where they, they found this artifact at this, this location that basically matched exactly what the Bible said uh, happened. And, uh, and so it showed that the Joshua of the Bible uh, was capable of writing, and, and you had this whole field of scholarship and biblical criticism that basically said that the Bible couldn't have been written at that time, that it had to have been written centuries later by people who had a much more refined literary tradition by that point. And, uh, and then suddenly all of that is exposed as, as being completely false. And there's, there's a whole field of biblical scholarship and criticism that, that is just uh, kind of wiped clean in a in a in one fell swoop i think there was one scientist uh, that we quoted back when the joshua's altar was first found like years ago who said if this is what it what we think it is basically we all have to go back to kindergarten and when you have a scientist who's willing to to say yeah we got it wrong let's 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 look at the the reality of this let's go back to kindergarten if they're really willing to uh, accept that uh, the facts and go where the facts lead. I, there are more and more scientists who are who are open to the uh, to the idea of well, this really did have to be created. Yeah, one of the things it reminded me of is um, you know, Mr. Armstrong wrote in a few different places about when uh, NASA sent their first probe to to Mars and they sent their first pictures back from Mars, and he kind of talked about how on the one hand it was this amazing, incredible feet and and just you know really surprising and impressive kind of on one hand to see those pictures but then he said well it just it showed what i'd always expected based on the bible uh that you'd have this planet that the bible talks about the universe being in a state of decay and 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 you know empty and and that's what that's what mars was uh when you see these pictures it's exactly the same it's like well yeah it's they're incredible pictures and it's, it's it's surprising to see them in a certain extent to and surprising to see this data in that it's still kind of mind-blowing that you can have scientists look at these that data from a telescope and tell you what elements were in a galaxy that existed <laughs> 13 billion years ago it is uh yeah. but then it's also saying telling us exactly what we'd expected based on the Bible, that it's not this gradual evolution of galaxies, but something that points to instead a specific creation event and then things uh, moving on from there. So, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's a similar experience. Yeah, I, uh, we, we talk so much um, on this program at The Trumpet about uh, this kind of age of exposure that we're in. Uh, Gerald Fleury has has really been uncovering the the uh, sort of the root of the corruption that we see within America and Britain and, and the nations of Israel. And, and uh, we see God's hand in Bible prophecy so, so prominently. Uh, and it does feel like what's happening here is kind of the, the, the counterpart to that in a scientific sense where God is uh, allowing. And I mean, I do think when you look at the complexity of this 
this uh, project, the fact that it worked, uh, it's certainly a, a credit to the scientists who did that. But I, I just feel like God had to have had a hand in helping them and ensuring that this was able to capture the kinds of images that you're that you're talking about. The fact that it, it, it is miraculous in a sense that they can see what they're seeing. It's miraculous that we even have the view of the cosmos that we have. And it, God wants us to have that view because it does point us back to him. You know, it, like David said in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the more we see about the heavens and the more we understand the firmament that we're, we're looking at, even into the deepest recesses of space, uh, the more it shows us that there is a creator behind it. And then when you put it together with the revelation in the Bible, you see uh, not just that he created it, but that he created it for a purpose and that we have a connection to uh, everything that's going on out there. It's just incredibly exciting. And I do feel like the scientists who 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 have the uh, the I guess the humility and the willingness to to go where the evidence really leads are far more open to recognizing some of those truths that they were unwilling to even a couple of generations ago and even a few years ago. I think there are just more and more of them that are uh, are recognizing, well, there's something very, very special here. Um, and the truth of God is what explains it all. Well, we've been talking with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about the latest findings of the James Webb Space Telescope. He wrote a trumpet brief about this that appeared this past Monday. Has the James Webb telescope already exploded the Big Bang Theory? You can look for that at thetrumpet.com. Thanks so much for this, uh, Richard. Really enjoyed it. Great. Great to be here. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. China is becoming increasingly belligerent and threatening the flow of trade through sea lanes that America has been safeguarding for decades, as we will now learn in this report from Jeremiah Jacques. China's People's Liberation Army deployed forces this week to the waters and airspace around Taiwan. This was in response to a decision by United States House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to visit the island of Taiwan. So Taiwan is a nation of 23 million people. It lies on the northern end of the South China Sea. And this nation would like to be fully autonomous, a normal, independent country that uses democracy the will of the people, to chart its path into the future. But China views Taiwan as its own territory. Chinese Communist Party leaders see it as a state that is in the midst of a childish, almost like an adolescent rebellion against Beijing. And the Chinese are determined to bring this rebellious state under their control. The General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, has said on several occasions that he is willing to use military force, if necessary, to subdue Taiwan. The United States, for its part, has pursued kind of a delicate balancing act 
with China and Taiwan ever since 1979. That's when the U.S. withdrew its official recognition of Taiwan as a sovereign nation and moved to recognize the People's Republic of China as, quote, the sole legal government of China. This is the so-called One China policy. And ever since this time, the U.S. has had formal relations with China while it has kept unofficial relations with Taiwan. And then at the same time, America has also pursued a policy called strategic ambiguity regarding its commitment to defend Taiwan if it is militarily attacked by China. Under this strategic ambiguity, the U.S. supports Taiwan and gives it all kinds of military aid and equipment so that it can maintain its autonomy from China and stave off an invasion. But America does not directly say what it would do in the event that China attacks. It does not explicitly say that American forces will be deployed to join in Taiwan's defense. So that's the basic dynamic, and it's easy to see why the Taiwanese wanted Nancy Pelosi to visit them. As Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, she's third in the line of succession to the presidency. So she is a powerful official, and she's actually the highest level official to visit Taiwan since 1997. So her visit is seen as a signal that America is determined to uphold the status quo and to preserve Taiwan's autonomy and to ensure that China never conquers it. So it's easy to see why the Taiwanese wanted her to visit, but it's also easy to see why this would infuriate the Chinese so much. The Chinese see this visit as a real challenge to their claims on Taiwan, and they see it as sort of an upset to the one China policy. China actually doesn't even see this as a foreign policy issue. They view Taiwan as a domestic policy issue, and that's why the Chinese deployed forces around Taiwan in response to Pelosi's visit there. The Chinese feel like the visit is intensely provocative and that they are losing face because of it and that they need to respond in some sort of forceful way to it. So China's military is conducting war games off its coast at one of the narrowest points of the Taiwan Strait. It's only about 80 miles from the island. There were also reports that Chinese fighter jets were crossing the Taiwan Strait as Pelosi's plane was landing there as a sign of China's military might. The Chinese also, as they announced some of their live-fire drills, released footage of their famous DF-17 hypersonic missile. That weapon is called an aircraft carrier. It is nuclear-capable, and it works with a hypersonic glide vehicle that allows it to evade missile defense systems. And then, at the same time, the United States moved its USS Ronald Reagan aircraft carrier strike group nearer to Taiwan, apparently just to be ready to respond depending on what China does. So it's a tense situation, and China's irate response shows that this nation is more and more intent on asserting its will and becoming the dominant power in Asia. The live fire drills now taking place are really just the latest. Normally, China doesn't even need any excuse, such as Pelosi's visit, to go out into the waters of the South China Sea or the East China Sea 
and start conducting large-scale military drills. China has even built and militarized half a dozen islands in the South China Sea in an attempt to assert control over the waters there. China's claim on Taiwan is just really the tip of the iceberg. The Chinese Communist Party also makes unlawful claims of sovereignty over other areas such as Tibet and Xinjiang, and these seas also that contain many of the world's busiest and most important shipping lanes. So this is a power that is feverishly determined to control first Asia and then the world. And of course, the United States doesn't want to see this Chinese conquest happen. And so America uses diplomatic signals, such as Pelosi's visit. And America also often sails what are called freedom of navigation operations through the waters that China's been trying to assert dominance over. The commanding officer of the USS Ronald Reagan, Captain Fred Goldhammer, recently spoke about the purpose of these U.S. naval operations in this area. He said, Our presence in the South China Sea demonstrates America's commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific. This commitment that Goldhammer spoke of there is the same broader American commitment that really built the global security environment that has allowed trade to flourish worldwide for more than 70 years now. The U.S. has prevented aggressor nations from asserting control over shipping lanes and has kept those lanes free and clear. And this led to decades of the fastest economic growth mankind has ever experienced. It created globalization, which brought advancement to wide swaths of the planet. In his new book called The End of the World is Just Beginning, Peter Zion writes about the open trade system that America built. He writes, Any partner could go anywhere, anytime, interface with anyone in any economic manner, participate in any supply chain, and access any material input, all without needing a military escort. End quote. This new model with globalization certainly led to new problems for U.S. industry and in other areas, but its result extended lifespans for billions of people around the world, and it created what Zion calls the modern world of advanced transport and finance, of ever-present food and energy, of never-ending improvements, and mind-bending speed. End quote. Pelosi's visit and the ongoing operations by the USS Ronald Reagan and other American naval groups, that all shows that even though America's commitment to this global model has waned in recent years, it is not entirely gone. One important fact to keep in mind when we think about the U.S.-built global order is that the Chinese were among the primary beneficiaries of it. In fact, China was arguably the number one beneficiary. It wasn't just one generation that China went from a destitute agrarian country to the world's second largest economy. And many Chinese readily admit that they benefited hugely from this situation. One commentator named Eric Lee wrote, A large part of the world has prospered under such an arrangement of U.S. global leadership. The relative peace around the globe and the systems that govern international trade and finance have facilitated rapid 
economic growth in many developing nations. And then he continues a little further down. These nations are essentially free riders, of which China is the biggest and most successful one. So Eric Lee and many others see that China was the main beneficiary of the global order of free and open seas and of relative peace between large powers, that order that America made happen since World War II. China was able to be a free rider. It was able to use that time to grow powerful economically and militarily. But under General Secretary Xi Jinping, the Chinese have recently come to feel that they've taken really all they can from the American-led global system. Now, it's time for China to dominate first its neighborhood and then the world. That's why the Chinese now claim nearly the entire South China Sea as their territory. And that's why they see the visit from Pelosi and the various U.S. naval operations in the region as affronts. They see those things as emblems of a fading era that they are bent on conclusively ending. In reality, America's naval operations in the South China Sea and elsewhere in the region are only meant to keep the seas free and open to all, rather than letting China control them for exclusionary and selfish purposes. But China's leaders have made clear that they intend to make this the Chinese century. That's why they're deploying all kinds of armaments right now and holding war games and military exercises. These Chinese military exercises should be viewed as practice for the day when China's might will be unleashed on American efforts to keep Taiwan free and on American efforts to keep the South China Sea free and open. China wants the United States and the world to know that that day is coming. Some may argue that the war games and the threats that we're hearing from China this week are mainly bluster, but Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has said that China's increasing aggression in the South China Sea is steering the world toward war. In the July 2016 issue of The Trumpet, he wrote, Since the end of World War II, America protected this vital trade route and brought peace to this part of the world. Now, the American military is retreating and other great powers are coming in to fill the vacuum. China is intimidating the nations of Southeast Asia into submission to its will. It is forcing these countries to do it at once. Everything is headed in the direction of war." End quote. Mr. Fleury's analysis of the South China Sea dynamic is founded on specific Bible prophecies about the modern age. Isaiah 23 is one of these. It discusses an economic siege that will happen in the lead up to World War III. And it shows that a brief economic alliance will form between certain major Asian powers, such as China, and a German-led European bloc. And this alliance will end up besieging modern-day America and Britain. So this is why China's wrath about an American official visiting Taiwan, and this is why China's moves to militarize the South China Sea should all be taken very seriously. China's increasing militarization and aggression in this region, it is leading to the fulfillment of this prophecy. China is intimidating the less powerful countries in the region, such as Taiwan, with the goal of eventually cutting off America's and other nations' access to the South China Sea. 
To understand the details about where China's dangerous takeover of the South China Sea is leading, read Mr. Flurry's article. It's called China is Steering the World Toward War. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. Canada is pursuing environmental goals that threaten to seriously impede food production, putting more pressures on already vulnerable food supplies, as we will now learn in this report from Abraham Blondeau. The radical climate policies of Justin Trudeau's government are now bearing down on Canadian farmers. The federal government announced at a federal, provincial, territorial ministers of agriculture meeting that nitrogen fertilizer emissions must be reduced by 30% by 2030. This could have wide-ranging consequences on future crop yields when many parts of the world are finding it more difficult to produce food. In a joint press release, the Saskatchewan and Alberta ministers of agriculture expressed their disappointment in the decision. Quote, Fertilizer emissions reduction was not even a topic on the agenda of the annual meeting of federal, provincial, territorial ministers of agriculture, who just finished three days of meeting in Saskatchewan. Provinces pushed the federal government to discuss this important topic, but were disappointed to learn that the target is already set. The commitment to future consultations are only to determine how to meet the target that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Minister Bibo have already unilaterally imposed on this industry, not to consult on what is achievable or attainable. End quote. The Trudeau government placed the goal of a 30% reduction in emissions over 10 years ago in 2020, but now the government has decided upon a total emission reduction, not an emissions intensity reduction. So what's the difference between the two? According to Fertilizer Canada, a total emissions reduction, quote, puts a cap on the total emissions allowable from fertilizer at 30% below 2020 levels. As the yield of Canadian crops is directly linked to proper fertilizer application, this creates a ceiling on Canadian agricultural productivity well below 2020 levels, end quote. With a total emissions reduction, there is no way to reduce emissions without reducing crop yield. Canadian farmers already use efficient techniques in fertilizer use. Fertilizer Canada wrote, It is estimated that a 30% absolute emission reduction for a farmer with 1,000 acres of canola and 1,000 acres of wheat stands to have their profits reduced by approximately $38,000 to $40,500 annually. In 2020, Western Canadian farmers planted approximately 20.8 million acres of canola. Using these values, cumulatively, farm revenues from canola could be reduced by 396 million to 441 million on an annual basis. Wheat farmers could experience a reduction of 400 million. End quote. On top of a loss of revenue, a lowering of crop yield could lead to significant food shortages in Canada and across the world in the coming years. 
Why is nitrogen fertilizer so important to crop production? Nitrogen is a key element in the healthy growth of any plant. Nitrogen is needed in forming amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein. Mosaic wrote a factoid report on nitrogen fertilizers and wrote, quote, Since the Haber-Bosch process for synthesizing nitrogen fertilizer was developed early in the 20th century, its importance in maintaining the global food supply has rapidly grown. Approximately half the food production now in the world is supported by the use of nitrogen fertilizer. End quote. Nitrogen fertilizers are created from ammonia, which usually relies upon natural gas to start the process. Usually, fertilizer prices are directly tied to natural gas prices. These nitrogen fertilizers help crops grow by boosting photosynthesis and helps regulate water and nutrient uptake in the root system. This increases crop yield and speeds up their growth time. In Canada, which has a shorter growing season, these fertilizers are critical. Canada is also one of the world's leading producers of food. In 2021, crop production contributed $26.3 billion to Canadian GDP and employed almost 116,000 people on nearly 200,000 farms. $24.5 billion of the crops were exported. The two main crops were canola and wheat. Canada supplies 12% of the world's wheat and is the only major exporter of canola. The food and beverage processing industry, which is dependent on agriculture, accounts for 17.8% of all manufacturing GDP in Canada at $33.2 billion. These two industries provide 1 in 30 jobs in Canada. The new climate target is based upon a discussion paper released by Agriculture Canada that identifies the policies of the Trudeau government. Nitrogen has become a target because it is asserted it traps 300 times more heat than carbon dioxide. The report states, quote, The target applies to both direct, following fertilizer application, and indirect, from nitrogen leached from fields and volatized to the atmosphere as ammonia, emissions from the application of fertilizer. Based on current data for 2019, in which emissions from synthetic fertilizers accounted for 12.75 million tons of common units of greenhouse gases, the fertilizer target is anticipated to translate to a reduction of approximately 4 million tons. End quote. The paper asserts that the agriculture industry accounts for 10% of all Canadian greenhouse gas emissions. Canadian farmers applied around 2.7 million tons of fertilizer in 2019. Since 2005, that represents a 71% increase in nitrogen fertilizer use. The report states Canadian farmers are one of the worst environmental polluters. Quote, Canada accounts for approximately 1% of global agricultural emissions. However, available data shows that Canadian cereal production likely has one of the highest levels of emissions intensity, i.e. amount of greenhouse gases emitted per unit of product, amongst major exporting countries, end quote. Emission intensity is measured in kilograms of common greenhouse gas units, or CO2e, per kilogram of product. In 2017, Canada stood at 
0.26 kilograms of CO2e per kilogram of product. Australia at 0.23, the United States at 0.21, and other countries still lower. Many Canadian farming organizations dispute these numbers since there is no agreed-upon standard for measuring emissions from agriculture. When these numbers are compared to China, the top polluting nation in the world, it helps place the threat posed by Canadian farmers into perspective. A scientific report published at Nature found Chinese farming emissions to be between 0.48 kilograms of CO2e per kilogram of product and 1.6 kilograms, which are several times higher than Canadian farms. In 2014, China's agricultural sector emitted 1,198.44 million tons of CO2e, which is nearly 94 times more than Canadian emissions. When looking at the world picture, if Canadian farmers do reduce their nitrogen emissions by 30% in 8 years, they will have achieved a 0.016% reduction in CO2e globally. This is not the first Trudeau climate policy to adversely affect farmers. The carbon tax has already proved massively expensive. True North reported, quote, In 2020, the Parliamentary Budget Office estimated that federal government carbon tax would cost Canadian farmers an estimated $235 million by 2025. At the time, Conservative MP Philip Lawrence told Parliament that farmers were sending him exorbitant bills for carbon tax totaling between $10,000 to $20,000. The grain farmers of Ontario calculated that the carbon tax amounts to $5.50 per acre of corn for just harvesting, but rises to over $14 for other transportation costs. When farmers have over 1,000 acres of land, these costs multiply very quickly. Some farmers have reported their carbon tax bills being over $2,000 per month. Rising fuel and fertilizer costs will only make it more difficult for farms to stay viable. Trudeau's climate policies are not about saving the planet, they are about destroying the biblical blessings of Canada. The late Herbert W. Armstrong proved in the United States and Britain in Prophecy that Canada is part of the tribe of Ephraim and receive blessings of wealth and prosperity because of the patriarch Abraham's obedience. Mr. Armstrong identified Canada's blessing being its natural resources. The Bible prophesies in 2 Kings 14.28 that the communist radical left would attempt to blot out the name of Israel. This prophecy means these communist forces will undermine Israel's prime position in the world by attacking physical blessings, and Israel's history with God. Climate change is just a vehicle for this attack, a thin veil to disguise the true intent. Ever since God bestowed the blessings to the United States and British Commonwealth starting around 1800, these nations have had abundant food sources due to inheriting the most fertile land and having favorable weather. The United States and Britain in Prophecy identifies the Mississippi Valley and the vast plains of Canada as some of the prime farming land in the entire world. Mr. Armstrong also points out that the United States and Britain were able to help other nations uh, through times of crisis, just like the patriarch Joseph did in the book of Genesis.
When Joseph helped Pharaoh and the world survive a famine, the United States and Britain have done similarly since the 19th century. However, those days are over. Canada was once the breadbasket of the British Empire, but these climate policies threaten to seriously disrupt Canada's agricultural output. Radical climate change policies are an attack on these God-given blessings that supply power, security, and leadership in the world. The Trudeau government is actively seeking to undermine Canada's agricultural industry to solidify its communist rule and further transform the nation. The Bible prophesies in Matthew 24 verse 7 that just before Christ returns, there would be famine. God specifically warns that famine and agricultural disruptions would strike the modern nations of Israel, including Canada. Mr. Armstrong wrote in the United States in Britain in Prophecy, quote, Other prophecies reveal we are to soon have drought and famine that disease epidemics will follow, taking millions of lives. When our heaven is as iron and our earth as brass, we will realize rain does not come down from iron, and an earth hard as brass is not getting rain, not yielding food. Leviticus 26 verse 20 says, And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield her increase, neither shall the trees of the land yield their fruits. End quote. Some of the food shortages are self-inflicted, but God also promises to supernaturally curse our nations because of national rebellion against his laws. Right now, food is still plentiful, but disruptions to the food supply chain because of the COVID pandemic and climate change policies on farming are going to have massive impacts on crop yields in the years to come. These Bible prophecies will come to pass. Now is the time to act and seek God before these terrible curses come to the full. To learn more, please read the United States and Britain in Prophecy and our book, America Under Attack. It's time for today's Last Word. What do you do when your children won't listen to you? Many parents admit they don't know, and they find their methods for disciplining their children don't work. You see these parents all the time at the local grocery. They're repeated threats. If you do that one more time, did you hear me? For the last time, stop it. They don't work. They float and pop like tiny bubbles. Many of these parents have just given up, and they leave their children in charge. Why don't their methods of discipline work? You know, after timeouts and removing privileges, the third most common form of discipline, according to a clinical pediatrics survey, is yelling at the child. Now, that's a sign of parents who never taught their children to listen. Parents who punish only when their children get on their nerves well they've fallen into one of the easiest parenting traps lack of consistency and follow-through the plain truth about child rearing this was a booklet put out by the worldwide church of god under herbert w armstrong calls this perhaps the most common of all parental failings 
in administering just and loving discipline. It says to punish for an infraction one day and then to allow the same infraction without punishment the next day is totally confusing to a child. Frequently, parents will say, but I do spank him, and then go on to argue, but it doesn't do a bit of good. Always at the root of a statement like that is discipline that is totally ineffective because it is not being done consistently. Now, this is an easy trap to fall into when we get too focused on ourselves. We give a command. We fail to notice whether the child obeys, for example. We can make excuses for our children. We can have fuzzy expectations and then fail to recognize rebellion for what it really is. Now, this is an especially bad problem in a society that is suspicious of or ambivalent about authority and discipline. So parents second-guess themselves. Every time the child defies them, they're in a quandary because they don't want to confront the child. Well, it's critical that we teach our children to listen carefully and obey our instructions promptly and specifically. The only way to teach this is by speaking only once and then disciplining the child who fails to obey. Check up on yourself. Give your child a single simple command and see how he or she responds. We are to emulate God as a parent. The Bible has a lot of powerful examples of how consistent God is in disciplining his children when necessary. One of the clearest is the case of Uzzah. King David was moved to reclaim the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines and transport it back to Jerusalem. That was a noble goal, and God backed that. The problem was God had clearly demanded that this holy object be handled in a certain way, and David treated those demands casually. God had instructed that the ark was to be carried only by the Levitical sons of Koath. David gave the job to a couple of non-priests, including Uzzah. Well, God wanted the ark borne on the priest's shoulders, And he wanted it touched only by the staves that extended through the rings on the ark. Well, David put it on a cart. It was to be covered with badger skins. And that might not have been done in this case. And God warned that if the ark was ever touched, the offender would die. You can find all of that in the scriptures. But when David transported the ark, he didn't even talk to God about it. He consulted with the people, and they assured him everything would be all right. But it wasn't right. In fact, David was being very sloppy with God's law. The oxen carrying the cart stumbled. The ark became unsteady. Uzzah reached out to secure it, and the moment he touched it, he died, just like God said would happen. Now, if God were like most parents today, he would have reasoned, well, you know, that was an honest mistake. I'll overlook it this time. I'll give him another warning. You know, actually, maybe I shouldn't have made that law in the first place. But God didn't do any of those things. He had spelled out the law and the penalty for its infraction. He spoke once and he followed through. And look at the effect that this rebuke from God had on King David and on the Israelites. It was shocking. First, David became angry, which shows that his thinking really was off at the time. 
But after he reflected on it, he repented. And then he finished the job correctly. He took very special precautions to do it precisely according to God's original instructions. God's firmness prevented David's disobedience from getting any worse. And it set the nation back on course. Now, this incident beautifully illustrates what the Apostle Paul wrote in Hebrews 12 and verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's what the Revised Standard Version says in that verse. So, parents, follow God's example. Be clear about the rules. Speak only once and expect your children to obey. Then pay attention. And when they go off course, don't make excuses for them. Be consistent about applying the necessary discipline. If you do, you'll find that the battles between you and your children will subside. You and your children will both experience the peaceable fruit that only results from the godly application of consistent loving correction. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, and Abraham Blondeau. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Orlando Batista. One of the hardest things to teach a child is that the truth is more important than the consequences. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.